Today we have Paul Gu join the show. Paul has been a great friend and a supporter of Leonis Capital. So I'm really excited to have him on the show and talk about his journey. So I guess, Paul, first question maybe to, to kick off the conversation. Many people know that you're co-founder of Upstart, but not a lot of people know the origin story of the company. And frankly, the origin story maybe about you. Maybe tell us where where is hometown, where we born, and what was it like growing up in the U.S. Yeah, so I was actually I'm an immigrant. I was born in China in, in Hebei Province, and、uh, I came to the U.S. like many people when I was、uh, just a kid. I was around six when I came to the U.S. and I had grew up in Phoenix. Went to Arizona is known for having some poorly ranked public schools, and、uh, so I just went to some of those. They were fine, like very. Normal kind of public school、uh, upbringing in, in Arizona, and and yeah, I guess probably some of the things like, of course, when I first came to the U.S., couldn't really speak English, and so that was like a couple years of that and doing the ESL thing, and then and then went through the years where where school, I think especially in the public school system, a lot of times like wasn't the most engaging. So I think I spent a lot of time just fooling around or doing my own thing in class instead of paying attention, and that probably in some sense. I think got me started on having a bit more of an independent streak, and I found myself learning much more often outside of class than inside of it. Learning by doing stuff, and that ended up extending even later on to, to, to school when, when maybe some of the classes at least got a little bit more interesting. But I had already built up a habit of not paying attention and was just doing my own stuff all the time. And and probably in some sense that was like the very first thing that led me to start tinkering. And I think tinkering eventually leads you to want to do your own thing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think most Asian kids come to this country and、uh, go to school, and the mantra is to get straight A's, get good grades. How、right. did the how did your parents feel about you not paying attention in school and、yeah. doing your own thing? Yeah, it was interesting. My my parents were not they were not like the sort of stereotypical kind of immigrant Asian parents in the sense that they definitely had high expectations, but for、mm. some reason they didn't connect it to school specifically. So、mm. they and I think this probably also contributed to to the way I evolved my worldview. My dad always he I remember distinctly there's this time when I, I forget what grade it maybe it was in like middle school or something and I came home from school and I was like in school they started giving us textbooks but but we didn't really make that much progress in the textbooks in school because we just went very slowly and it was like I don't know the second month of school and then my dad like flipped to like the back of the textbook and started asking me random questions and I was like in something I didn't know about、like、geometry or I don't know something I would have no reason to know anything about and I was like I don't know we are not there yet in class. And he was just like, "Why does that matter? Like, I don't care like where what you do in class. Like, I care whether you know all the things." And yeah, and he got really mad. And then that was like the both the sort of pros and the cons of it. Like he, my parents did not care that much whether I paid attention in class, did my homework, or brought home good grades. But they, but they expected me to know much more, at least in certain subjects, than than were was covered in school. And and they didn't care how I came by the knowledge, but but I needed to have it. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. And I, frankly, I can only imagine like growing up as an immigrant here in the U.S. and especially in Arizona. It's even very different place than the Bay Area. I was wondering. So when you went to school there and growing up, like, do you feel? I didn't even know you took the English as second language class early on. That's that's pretty amazing. But does it feel like you're out of place and you try to like? How does that influence your thinking when you think about starting companies? And to a degree, being not part of the group from the、yeah. from the get go. Yeah, they're definitely. I guess from like the maybe the ethnic angle. Of course, there there weren't so many Asians where I grew up in Phoenix. For 
most of my, at least in elementary school and to a lesser extent in middle school, of course, as the school gets bigger, law of large numbers helps you. But at least in elementary school, I don't think I ever had any classes where I had more than one if or sometimes zero classmates who are Asian. And I'm not sure if how much that contributed, but I think I was always, I was never really in the in-group. And mostly I think it was just because I'm like a weird nerdy person, maybe a little bit also because I was Asian, I don't know. But but I, in many ways, I think I was, I was never really a popular kid growing up. And I think I was always like off with a few weird kids doing weird things and not into the stuff everybody else was into. I was like not paying attention in class academically and then I was like not really paying attention socially to what the other kids were interested in. That makes three of us. Let's make a good show. <laughs> awesome. And then after that you went to Yale, right? For college. Yep. And then quickly you drop out from Yale and join a fellowship. Can you walk us through what was the thinking process at the time? I I guess how do you communicate that news to your parents, right? Yale is a really good school. So how did that decision happen? Yeah, yeah. I should say first of all that even though I I didn't I was like not at all a good student up literally up until high school. And that's because I really didn't see the point. I was like, well, who cares like what my middle school grades are? And then at some point as I entered high school, I became I became very focused on like, oh, actually, it turns out that the the it, it seems like the sort of path to doing well in life goes through college applications and then there's this whole track from there. And so I became very focused on that and uncompetitive in a sense. And so I had very good grades in high school. And I, that was sort of like a very important goal of mine to go to quote unquote a highly ranked school. And uh, and so of course, so I did. And that was such an important life goal that it was very odd in some sense that just two years later I dropped out. And I think it was very shocking for my parents and that's where I think their non-traditional Asian-ness ended. And like, they were very unhappy <laughs> with my decision to leave. But I, I think for me, it was just about having a clear view of what the sort of, um, what the sort of risk and reward was of the decision. And I think at the time, probably where I differed most from everybody else was not so much in that. I think everybody could see, oh, in the upside case, things are like really great. And, and it, it makes sense to leave school and start a company. But, but actually where I differed most in my view was what's the downside? And when I really thought about it. There wasn't that much downside. It was like, okay, in the worst case scenario, I'll just go back to school and then keep doing what I was going to do. If I'm the sort of traditional track is still going to be there. And, and what I will have learned in the time I was away, if it's like a year or two years or three years, it's going to be exceptional compared to anything I could learn sitting in lectures. And let's be real, most of the students at, at my school, as good as students of, as they were in high school, by the time they get to college, you're not really there to be in class. You're, mm. you're there for the social experience and everything else. And some of that stuff is great, but I had two years of it. And it's like, do I need, how much of the value have I already gotten in these two years? How much more will I get over two more years? And certainly comparing the pure learning of being out in the world, doing something with real skin in the game and getting the sort of real world experience of building a company versus sitting in lecture. That was just like, it was very obvious one was better than the other. And then if I could just return to the track with um, the extra sort of learnings and, and wisdom, it seemed, it seemed strictly better. I guess I, it, it yeah. felt to me like even the downside was upside. Yeah, to be honest, that's a really mature way of thinking. Like being a sophomore in college, like you thought a lot about the downside, upside, and very rational decision making process. Did you know like how hard it's gonna be starting your company, going in? I guess first of all, join the fellowship, but then you had to figure out what you want to do, right? And then you start a company. But did you realize how hard it's gonna be before you really take the jump? I definitely. Uh... 
I definitely couldn't have foreseen all the difficulties. Mm. I guess in some sense, maybe in a very superficial sense, and mm. probably in the wrong sense, I think I had the idea. It's hard. I think people know, oh, for every like company that succeeds, there's all these ones that fail. And so in a probabilistic sense, I think I had the understanding that this would be hard. But I think that was actually even in some sense the wrong understanding. I actually think that wasn't so much, it's not like playing the lottery, which mm. I think it's what it felt like to me. So it's going to be a bit like a, a sort of lottery game and who knows, like, one in 20, Chad win the lottery and 19 out of 20 times I lose. And I think that was the wrong mental model for it. Instead, there were all these challenges that in some sense, like challenges that I had some agency over. They were not like playing a lottery or a dice game, but were, were exceedingly difficult. And there were many of them, many more of them than I could have anticipated. And they didn't just stop when we raised our first round of funding or something. I think that's all I could imagine when I was 19 mm. years old. It was like, yeah. oh, either we're, either it's going to 19 out of 20 times, we just like nothing happens and I just flail and then the, the company never takes off. And the other time we raise like a million dollars and then we have succeeded. And I was <laughs> like, oh, it turns out that actually is like only step one of a 50 part journey. And yeah. that's really most of the experience. Yeah. But the most important thing seems to be that you got to take the chance. You got to take the first step and then see what happens. Right. Yeah, for sure. At that time, that, that was really the big leap. And I think that was the real value of the kind of Teal Fellowship program is that it just a forced jumping off a moment. I knew I'd wanted to start something and I probably have, or not probably, I definitely was going to work on stuff on the side while in school, but it's just hard to be serious about it. And I think the reality is the forcing function was very helpful in just taking a leap and saying, okay, I'm now like full-time devoted to this. I have no classes. I have no parties and I might have nothing to show for my time if I don't do something. And I think that was incredibly valuable um, and wouldn't have happened if I didn't take the leap with that program. Yeah. So this is an interesting topic because oftentimes we run to many type of founders and many are at really early stage. And especially founders come from, let's say, really good background, maybe work at Google or Facebook for many years. And oftentimes they stuck in this decision dilemma, whether they should take the leap and start a company or they should just keep thinking about it. But the reality is that you, when you don't have the forcing function, when you are in a comfortable spot, maybe that moment will never come. I guess the question to you is that now, if you look at some early stage founders or you talk to early stage founders, when you advise them. What would be the most important thing? Like, how would you evaluate? Is it the startup idea? Is it the drive? Or is it that they have the determination to just do something and I guess see what happens? Like, how would your experience frame your thinking, your advice, startup founders? Yeah, I think one of the things that I learned that was especially important after I dropped out of college and started the Teal Fellowship program, I discovered that I actually had to figure out like what I was really going to work on. And I think before that I hadn't really been serious, I had like plenty of random ideas, thought I was serious about them, but then you spend like 14 hours a day thinking about this thing and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't care about this thing at all. And I think for me, at least it was coming to the acceptance and realization that uh, I shouldn't be just like trying to start a company for the sake of starting a company. I needed to actually have real interest and passion in an underlying problem space and an underlying set of technologies or, or solutions that that was really a critical piece of it because in all other ways, I think founders, especially young founders, but most founders are just operating at a huge competitive disadvantage to existing companies. I mean, you have no existing team, infrastructure, money, you just have nothing. And there's really no reason 
that you should succeed in creating something new in the world, except you have more like energy, passion, and kind of motivation around solving a problem than your sort of potential competitors or the incumbents do. And I think to sustain that over the period of time required to not just raise a seed round or a series A or whatever, but to actually build a company that's going to succeed, it's going to take many years. And I think the sort of just the prestige excitement of, oh, I'm like building a company, that's not enough. I think you need some real kind of underlying passion for the topic. Like when you're exhausted after five years of doing it and you're taking a shower, you still need to be interested in thinking about the problem. And that's one thing I tend to suggest people focus on and tend to look for myself is people who really have a kind of a first order connection with their problem and the passion for thinking about it, not just for building a company worth X dollars. So maybe tell us more about your journey of finding the product market fit, given that you, the first company, maybe the product went through some pivots early on as well. How are you thinking about this? Is my company at the failing point? Or do I just need to find a new area and new problem to solve? Where is the line? I guess the question is that when you went through that journey yourself, how does it feel? What was the darkest moment that you said, holy shit, this thing might not work, right? Then what are you going to do? So what's it like in your experience? Yeah. When we first started Upstart, we started with a slightly different model. It was income share agreements and some sense similar to what we do now with loans, but but very different packaging. Mm-hmm. But we really evangelized the concept of income share agreements for the first year and a half. And then eventually we had this board meeting and I think it was Josh Koppelman at first round who was like, there where you you told me that there would be hordes at the gate looking for this product. And are there hordes at the gate? Because I don't sense that there are hordes at the gate. And that was that classic, I think, product market fit sort of question where it was like, we'd been like tinkering and tuning and we'd spent all this time micro optimizing this product. We were literally doing stuff like changing button colors when really, if the product was something that people wanted, that wasn't going to make the difference between that's not a zero to one question. That's like a one to two question and maybe not even one to two, like one to 1.5 question. And we had a much bigger problem, which was that the consumer was fundamentally just confused about whether an income share agreement was a good idea for them. And they had to be individually educated and people were coming to us asking what's an APR. And so that, that sort of lack of response from the market in a clear and overwhelming way, I think was a very strong signal for us, but at the same time, it was a nuanced signal because we noticed that it's not, they didn't want our product because they clearly weren't signing up and they weren't completing the process. But they were showing up and wanting something. And that something was a related thing, but different. People would come and they say, oh, they would be attracted because they're like, oh, I am a young person. There are not a lot of people who are willing to give me money and I need money. And what's your APR? And we would go into this long thing and say, well, you're missing the point income share agreement. There is no APR. There's just this sort of upside downside case. And if you open up an Excel spreadsheet and model the cases, you'll see it's a sort of very reasonable thing to do. And of course we lost everybody at that step. And bring out the spreadsheet. Yeah. And this sort of, and I'm oversimplifying a bit, but like there was something people wanted. They wanted, they did have the problem of being young, not having access to money and other lenders not being able to underwrite them. And they were familiar with the idea of an APR. They wanted an APR that was reasonable and fair. And so we said, well, hey, let's just take this sort of same general family of technology. We at Mm -hmm. the time had built tools to predict someone's future income. And we said, hey, let's redirect that at underwriting Mm -hmm. people who have short credit histories, but who are going to have a strong stream of future income that we can use to repay loans. So that's how we ended up finding ourselves in 
the business of loan underwriting. No, that's amazing. And I think it makes sense. It's more like a progression or evolution of the product and idea. And finally, you find the framework or the, I guess, the packaging that makes sense for the market yeah. that you serve. That's awesome. And then maybe we can dive a little bit deep about Upstart product and AI machine learning. Given that the core competency or core product is the AI machine learning that provide the underwriting for your customers, what do you think about the general trend of AI and machine learning apply in finance? Do you feel like there is a lot of buzz and hype in the space? Or maybe, maybe put it in more concrete sense, five years from now, uh, what we see differently in the AI machine learning in fintech from your perspective? Yeah, so there has been an, an, a huge amount of, of talk, I think, of AI and ML, especially in fintech. Yeah. And I think the actual reality is spottier. I think there are places where there's a lot happening and there's places where there's just a lot of talk. And of course, that's not surprising. I'd say at the broad level, of course, AI is one of the most important, probably the most important kind of technology force in the world today. And it is on a long enough timescale going to revolutionize every single industry and how everything is done. But the timescale really matters. And I think if you zoom in a little bit, I think you have to zoom in through two layers. Maybe the first this is an overgeneralization, but I call it the numbers versus words layer, which is the technology that's really sort of ready for prime time. That's been fully fleshed out. It's well past the kind of academic paper stage. And it's into the stage where it's good enough to overcome the messy realities of the real world are the numbers problems. When you are working with numbers and your inputs are numbers and your outputs are numbers, AIML is really good. And a lot of this sort of like core, the kind of core technology was developed decades ago, to be honest, some of the sort of core ideas of how to solve those problems from an academic standpoint came out many years ago, and then compute and then all these things basically happened to make it so applicable to real problems that companies like us are able to do what we do. Then there are words. Words are different because the words problems are a lot harder. And I think right now we are solving what I think of as the academic layer of problems for mm -hmm. words. And of course, there are companies at the same time trying to apply them. But I think a lot of those applications are fundamentally challenged by the fact that we're still developing the kind of underlying technology like GPT-3 is like, it's yeah. like a curiosity. It's cool, yeah. but in all these ways, just not quite good enough for the business application. And it's maybe just almost there, but it's at least thus far not been quite there yet. And so when you look at it, whether it's like chat bots or all these places where people talk about this, you zoom in, you find a lot of times there's like the man behind the machine, because it turns out you can't just rely on this machine. You still need people. And then once you have the people, it's just the thing where no one wants to talk to the automated phone thing. They're just like, talk to a person, talk to a person. You know, it's yeah. just because the tech has to be so good in order to justify use in real world application. And then I think in fintech in particular, that's the second layer. Like once you're past the numbers in the world, that even within numbers, right, is it good enough to justify the sort of dealing with the messy realities of the world? I think a lot of the reason that we've been able to build a differentiated technology business is that very few companies were actually willing, despite how almost obviously perfect the kind of like problem of lending is for use of AIML, there were very few, I, we would really say no companies that were actually doing it because of all the messy reality problems. You have various kind of legal regulatory compliance problems. You have a problem of dealing with the sort of entrenched system of there's a full network effect of how investors, capital markets, rating agencies, the way that you do like asset-backed securities, that whole world revolves around FICO scores. If you go in there as we did and say, hey, actually we have a better way to do things. Here's this 
borrower, and even though they have a low FICO score, they're not going to default trust us. And then they say, okay, we don't believe you. We're going to put this, whatever, this 10% loss expectation on this segment of credit. And then that flows through your credit ratings. It flows through your ability to do a securitization. It flows through advance rates. And basically there's this whole network effect that you have to overcome. And then of course, there's a very real financial risk of you are doing something new. There is it's like machine learning models make mistakes. They're imperfect. There's like tail risks. There's all these problems, especially when they're new, when the training data is imperfect, where you've got you know, the possibility of over-extrapolating, overfitting. So you've got real financial risk. And then you've just got this technical risk, like you have to do hard work. And you put all those things together. It's a pretty daunting challenge for a company to decide to take on. You have to, at some point, feel like, the upside to doing so is not just slow. This is like moderately better than the old way. It has to be 10 X better in order to justify dealing with this sort of messy realities. And until I think we, we came around and decided to bite the bullet and, and do it, you know, no one had, I think made the evaluation that this upside was worth the pain. Now that you've built, proven out the model, like how do you make sure that your machine learning models stay ahead of traditional banks who have infinite resources? Is it like the entrenched network effect you mentioned that they still aren't convinced that this is a better way of doing things or they just don't have the expertise or what is it about your model that traditional lenders aren't copying exactly? Yeah, so I would say the most important feature of what we do is that it's not static. It's still evolving and getting better at a rapid pace. And it's really, I think you can think about your position or your velocity. And in this case, um, we're starting with a position, which is a multi-year advantage over anybody else, just because we've been doing this since 2012. And really we have yet to see any other players make significant progress on this. There's a positional advantage, but then there's just the velocity advantage, which is we built a machine that is really good at improving the machine, if you will. And that's a combination of people, process, and technology. Like I would love, and certainly from my standpoint, it's like the product and ML guy, I would love if it's just a technology problem, but honestly, it's not. It's right. It's you build the technology and then you have to figure out how to communicate it, for example, to regulators and how do you fit it into a regulatory framework that was not built for this. And that's like one of 10 such problems. That's why I say there's kind of people and process problems, but you basically have to be very good, not only at building this technology, but then figuring out how to apply this technology in the context of this highly regulated business environment, how to add in the context of a business in which you have consumer interaction. It is not a business like say quant trading. Quant trading is like the perfect pure ML problem because you don't have to talk to anybody. If you just make a better algorithm, there's already a market it's set up. You hit the API and you'll make money. And that's sort of a perfect pure tech problem. This problem has many more dimensions to it that you have to be good at. So there's a velocity piece and our velocity is very high. And so the question is, as long as our velocity is as high or higher than anybody else, and we have a positional advantage, then it just stay ahead by the same amount or what we believe is an increasing amount over time. Yeah, I want to add on to what Paul was saying. I think from where we stand funding early stage companies, a lot of what we do is to analyze the market dynamics on top of understanding the founder, their incentive and their motivation. And the big piece is we try to find the market dislocation where the big incumbents, they might not moving fast enough or they don't have incentive to change. And that's when a startup can come in and be disrupted and can create new value that was not found before. And I think you guys at Upstart is just amazing. You guys went public early this year, late last year. 
And、uh, I know you guys been thinking a lot about the future of lending in different directions. I think one thing that I was curious about. Now we have many other new trend that's coming up, right? With DeFi, with crypto, with NFT. And with this decentralized organization, I guess you don't have to comment on any of those things. But like in general, five years or ten years from now, where do you think the Upstar product would be? Would it be dramatically different than where it is now, or how are you guys thinking about it? So well, that、yeah. you don't,、uh, so that you don't be disrupted by、mm-hmm. another startup later. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess some things will be the same, and some things will be dramatically different. I think there's a constant for us, which really is encapsulated in our mission statement about getting at true risk. That's going to be a constant. Like we will be always the company that is most dedicated to maximizing accuracy in getting to the truth of who are the people that will be able to pay back this loan and who are the people that won't be able to pay back this loan. Now, in that sense, of course, there will be differences in how we do that. I think there is going to be a lot more data. There's going to be a lot, even sort of more powerful algorithms applied to that. Of course, lots of advances there. But the crux of what we'll be doing and what we'll be focusing on and why we'll be better—that's going to be constant. But the places that will be doing that, I suspect, are going to look completely different. In a first order, because we're going to be present in many more places and we're in situations where people need credit. But in a second order sense, because of the things you said, which is I think there's underlying infrastructure changes in how sort of finance is happening, and whether that is through something like DeFi. There's maybe in my mind a few buckets of changes. There's things happening with DeFi and crypto. And then there's like things happening in neo banks. There's more of a direct to consumer element of maybe this integration, the marriage between lending and payments with BNPL and some things like that. So there's maybe some infrastructural forces that are going on that I think are changing the landscape of where consumer risk is evaluated. And so I think we're going to always be interested in staying on. The cutting edge of that, because we want to be where the consumer is, and we want to be tech forward and lean forward into places where consumers will be tomorrow, even if they aren't today. But when we're there, the thing we're going to be trying to do, our value add, is going to be the same, which is we're going to be there, and we're going to be trying to be more accurate than anybody by a lot in understanding the true risk of that consumer, and whether that's for one type of product or another, that's less important to us. But we'll be there making that valuation. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing I was curious: we often see that in early stage companies, startup equals to founders. There's no question. That's what the company is about in early stage of a company formation. Now that you guys are a public company, you continue to attract talents, and you try to most of the public company they will grow and they will try to in the same culture. I guess the question to you is that being in a company for maybe at this point over ten years now. A little bit over ten years, starting twenty years,、yeah. approaching ten years.、Wow. So, what are the biggest lesson learned or advice that you can give in terms of scaling up a company from day zero to where it is now, and what type of talents or what type of people do you want to attract to Upstart? Yeah. So, I think again, there's a thing you want to be constant over time, and a thing that needs to evolve. There's a constant thing, which is you do need something to make. Your team cohesive. There needs to be something in common about your operating culture, your values, your mission, and you need to have those things in common. Or you're not a team. You're just like a collection of mercenaries, and you don't really want to be just a collection of mercenaries. But at the same time, you also need to evolve because the the problems you face are just going to change. They change with scale. I think one of the things that I was been most surprised by was how 
frequently the problems change, especially when you're growing. But I think it's almost like maybe every couple of months over the last 10 years, I feel like I've worked at a different company because the sort of things we had to deal with are different. They, they always feel like big problems. Sometimes they feel like existential problems. And you can imagine if I had like every two months for 10 years, it's six, 60 times where you feel like you've had new existential problems you're dealing with. And that means that over that journey, you're going to want people who are capable of tackling those kinds of problems, the scale of those problems. And at some point you move from problems being the most low level on the ground problem to the more abstracted problems where you need to solve them, not just with your individual insight, but actually you need to be able to build a team of people that generate insights. And then you need to be able to certainly build a machine that generates insights and that acting of your ability to solve problems requires, I think, different kinds of people. And of course you want those people to share some of the same cultural mission elements, but you do need to keep bringing in a new blood that has the right things. Yeah. The other thing I, I will kind of end with a few last questions, but this is being amazing. You started a company almost 10 years ago and the company went on to raise a good amount of capital from really well-known investors and you work with different VCs. What other advice that you will give to future VCs to be a good investor? Because we have some younger investors, professionals, well, listeners as well. So what would be the do's and don'ts from your perspective? Yeah, well, notes too. we had a lot of no's in our, in our process, like way more investors that said no than yes. And we never were a really high investment, but partially that was a function of timing. In some sense, I think maybe is the point, which is I was surprised. And I think in hindsight, it's even clearer the timing. And there was a lot of just like, oh, we invested in some companies that vaguely looked like your company before, and then it didn't work out. And so now we're like, we're done with that. Or like, oh, there's like this company that went public that has some similarities to you and they're like not doing very well. We stay away from this category. This is weird because there are a lot of problems where it takes multiple shots on goal to solve the problem. And the nuances of the solution sometimes matter a lot. And it's not just, oh, hey, in this decade, there's going to be generically some company that is going to solve generically some problem. Some Sometimes I guess that's true. Uh, but sometimes you need a specifically good solution to, to solve a problem. And it's not just like any generic kind of index approach to a space is going to make do. And I felt like there was a general unwillingness from a lot of prospective investors to engage with the technical details of what we were doing. Like they kind of looked at it from almost like a 10,000 foot level and said, you do loans like other people do loans. Last year we were big on loans and this year we're not big on loans. I'm like oversimplifying a little bit. And then we would say, but hey, like, why don't you really engage with the content of look at our curves of this efficient frontier we've got between our ability to approve people and our ability to maintain credit performance versus what others are able to do. And to really grasp that concept, I think you have to get deep into the subject matter. And I think there was a general unwillingness or maybe just fear of taking bets that required a certain amount of domain knowledge. But I feel like for a lot of problems, you just need that because otherwise you're stuck being like an index fund and I think being an index fund of startups is not a good thing. Yeah, I think that's a spot on. Paul, it's been amazing talking to you and thanks for sharing your perspective and your story with us. A lot of things that we chatted before, but I feel like this episode really go in depth about the product of Bobstar and about your journey as well. So really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks so much.